Behind the Lines, the greatest war letters ever written and the stories behind them. Hosted by the Emmy Award-winning journalist Barbara Harrison with co-host Andrew Carroll, the New York Times best-selling author and military historian. My dearest Evelyn, this should be the letter to end all letters. When you next hear from me, it'll be in person. So long, honey, and pucker up, because here I come. Nathan. Wow, those were some pretty excited words written by a soldier back in 1945. We'll tell you more about that shortly. But first, hello, and welcome everyone to our Behind the Lines podcast, featuring readings of some of the greatest war letters ever written and the stories behind them, as told by the man who collected the letters, Andrew Carroll. Andy is the founding director of the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University, and he has made it his life's mission to seek out and preserve correspondences from every U.S. conflict. Andy has published four New York Times bestsellers, including War Letters and Behind the Lines. Andy is also the author of a play, If All the Sky Were Paper. Now to that letter that opened our program. It was written by a World War II soldier named Sergeant Nathan Hoffman to his fiancée, Evelyn, on December 31, 1945. It was featured in the critically acclaimed American Experience documentary called War Letters, based on Andy's book of the same name. It was read by the actor David Hyde Pierce. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Andy Carroll. Hey, Andy. Hey, Barbara. As always, it's great to be with you again. Just so our listeners know, in the first episode of the Behind the Lines podcast series, we discussed how you started, Andy, your project to save America's war letters. For this episode, we're going to hear and talk about great love letters written in the times of war. And we always have some wonderful voices reading our letters. In addition to actor David Hyde Pierce, who you heard earlier, we'll also hear readings by Thomas Matthews, Rob Lowe, Juliana Margulies, Joan Allen, Miran Willis, Giovanni Ribisi, Keith Nobbs, Mandy Siegfried, Barbara Brock, Jack Piccolo, and Edward Norton. Andy, one of my favorite love letters was written by Sullivan Ballou and featured in the great Ken and Rick Burns documentary on the Civil War. You know, it, it, it's so interesting that you say that because that Sullivan Blue letter had a huge impact on me as well. I mean, to this day, I vividly remember hearing the letter and being just so profoundly moved by how beautifully Blue articulated his just eternal affection for his wife. It's hard to believe that the Burns film aired on television almost 30 years ago. Before we hear the letter, and to just give people some context, it was written in Washington, D.C. on July 14th, 1861, a week before the First Battle of Bull Run. This letter is read by actor Thomas Matthews. My very dear wife, indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break, and yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly on with all those chains to the battlefield. 
The memories of all the blissful moments I have spent with you come crowding over me and I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I have enjoyed them so long. I know I have but few claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me. Perhaps it is the wafted prayer of my little Edgar that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you in the garish day and the darkest night, amidst your happiest scenes and gloomiest hours, always, always. And if the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath, or the cool air cools your throbbing temples, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me, dear. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. Sullivan. Ah, sadly, Sullivan Ballou was killed during the battle, leaving behind his wife and their two young boys, five-year-old Edgar and his little brother William. You know, and what makes that letter all the more tragic is that it was never mailed. Oh, Wandy, that is tragic. Yeah, yeah. and it was actually found um, years later by the governor of Rhode Island, which is where Ballou was from, who was trying to retrieve all the personal effects of troops from his state. And Andy, we also know that Sarah never remarried. She died alone at the age of 80, and she's buried next to her beloved Sullivan at a cemetery in Providence, Rhode Island. But let's turn now to other wars. Andy, what's the earliest love letter that you've read? Oh, boy. I mean, we, um, you know, we have letters that go as far back as the American Revolution. And, and these are, without question, the hardest to find since, you know, a lot of the service members, um, they didn't know how to write. Paper was scarce. You know, and there, there wasn't really even a mail system then. And worst of all, some of the recipients of the letters burned them later, including Martha Washington. Martha destroyed all of George Washington's letters to her? Yes. When he died in 1799, Martha, apparently wanting to keep their relationship private, which is totally understandable, gathered all the correspondences between them into a pile and set it on fire. Oh, my God. Wonder what did she want to keep people from seeing that he had written to her? Yeah, and that's the tragedy. We just we don't know. It's it's such a loss to history. And But at least three letters by him were discovered later after she passed away. How did they find them? They were uh, they were tucked into a desk drawer, uh, sort of underneath. And you know, this is just you know a long time after Martha had passed that someone discovered it. And one of them was a short but very poignant message from the early days of the revolution. Philadelphia, June twenty third, seventeen seventy five. My dearest. As I am within a few minutes of leaving the city, I could not think of departing from it without dropping you a line, especially as I do not know whether it may be in my power to write again till I get to the camp at Boston. I go fully trusting in that providence, which has been more bountiful to me than I deserve, and in full confidence of a happy meeting with you sometime in the fall. I have not time to add more, as I am surrounded with company to take leave of me. I retain an unalterable affection for you, which neither time or distance can change. My best love to Jack and Nellie, and regard for the rest of the family, concludes me with the utmost truth and sincerity. Your entire, George Washington. 
Interesting. We've never heard much about the romantic relationship between George and Martha Washington, but that letter made me want to know more. And you know, Andy, just listening to the Washington and Ballou letters, there's something especially eloquent about how they were written, such beautiful language. Oh, definitely. And, you know, obviously Washington was well-educated, but many correspondences from the Revolution and other early American wars are like e- equally as poetic. Uh, the reason is that for the troops who could read and write, the one book they had all been raised on was the King James Version of the Bible. So the way they expressed themselves was heavily influenced by that style. Very formal in style, but we see that at some point war letters changed in tone. They become a little more informal, for lack of another word, kind of conversational. Oh, definitely. And I think the real change comes in the First World War. And that's when most of the letters, if, if you heard them read aloud, would sound almost as if they were written today. And, and it's funny, Barbie, that you mentioned the word uh, conversational, because one of my favorite letters is written by a wife and her husband, uh, Golding Ed Marcellus. And Ed was an army clerk uh, deployed to Europe during the war, and he had access to a typewriter. So after Gold would send Ed these incredibly loving handwritten letters, Ed would literally put the pages into his typewriter and type his responses directly on the letter and then mail everything back to her. So it ultimately reads like an actual conversation. Dear husband, this is Saturday afternoon and I have the work all done and washing on the line. Smart girl. I received a letter from your sister Pearl. Why don't she write to me? Your mother goes over and does the washing and ironing and the baking. And talking. I took your picture to church with me. You see, I just must have you with me. That is all. That is a catastrophe. Everyone thought you sure was a fine, fat, looking young man. And the preacher said, Not only he, but he's the possessor of a nice-looking young wife. I will look more pretty when you get home. Your picture stands in front of me this very moment. Why don't you send me some of yours? I have worn yours out already. I just have to kiss that sweet face every time I look at you. Well, I must stop a-bragging on you, for you might run away with some pretty girl over there. There isn't any. Oh, It's mail time, and I do want to get this in the box by 4.30, so I will have to close. I could write to you by the hours. Take good care of yourself, and I will do the same. So bye-bye, my dear hubby. I enclose all my love for you. From your ever-ever loving wife, Goldie. Ed. (laughs) That's wonderful. And what about love letters that were actually meant to be funny? There must be times when troops on the front lines uh, use humor in letters to their loved ones. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, one of my favorite couples is Lieutenant Sid Diamond and his fiancée, Estelle Spiro, who I actually got to know later in life. Um, They had met in a playground in 1938 in the Bronx when they were uh, both teenagers, and they started off just as friends. How do you know all that, Andy? So just getting to know Estelle, who who shared with me this, you know, this all these correspondences, and and they wrote throughout the entire war. So we have a ton of their letters, and you know, it's, Estelle 
told me how they kissed for the first time um, a year after they'd first met at Coney Island. Uh, but then Sid joined the army when you know America declared war in December 1941, and he just wrote regularly to Estelle. I mean, he was just this incredibly intelligent and, and thoughtful young man. But he also had a, a sweet, silly side. And he would write as if he had a thick New York accent in his letters, which he did not in real life. And he began one letter like this before switching back to his real voice. <laughs> I really want to hear this one. Sounds intriguing. This is read by Giovanni Ribisi. Let's hear it. May 1943. Darling. Me? I'm tough, see. I sleep on the ground. I eat rough vittles. Nobody gets the better of me, no siree. There's only one thing what's got me perplexed, er, per, er, a screwy. And that's a dame, see? What a babe. Cute? Nothing better. A looker? Tops. Yeah, and even talks Intel, Intel or uh, smart-like. You got me? Yeah. Once she tells me I'm nuts, that don't bother me none. She tells me I'm an imbi... imbi... or a dope. Voice she sugar, honey, and schmaltz. Then she gets to nagging and raising the roof with me. She treats me rough and tough. What do I do? What do I do? I takes it. I tries to tell her of the sky, the trees, the birds, the scenery. She tells me I'm childish? Small like a whip, my babe, uses big words. Ain't childish a big word? Sweetheart, joking aside, I love you. Love you to the utmost. My darling, listen, if this war takes 10 years, yes, even 20 years, I'll finish college. For more reasons than one. Here's the story, and let's settle it once and for all time. And by heaven, let's not continue discussing this matter. I want to marry you. To spend the rest of my life with you telling me to stop biting my fingernails. Now we place the dilemma in your lap. You choose the most suitable time. I love you. Your, and I do mean your, Sid. So, Andy, what happened between Sid and Estelle? Did, did they get married after the war? Well, so as I mentioned before, we actually have quite a number of letters by Sid, and we want to save some of these for future podcasts. So we can kind of follow him throughout World War II, and then we'll reveal eventually what happened. Okay, so you're saying we've got to wait. That's right. You're, you're, you're going to have to wait. Yep. Okay, Andy. So can you tell us about a soldier or Marine, sailor or airman and their sweetheart where we do know the ending? For better or worse. Sure. And, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, and this is probably one of the more unique letter-related stories I've ever encountered. And it also occurred in World War II. In early 1944, uh, there was a young woman from Georgia named Norma Clinton, and she wrote a letter to a U.S. Marine named Harry Kipp, who was off fighting in the Pacific. Now, Norma had, like, literally no idea who Harry was. Uh, she only wrote to him because her Aunt Jean had known Harry and thought that, you know, with as with many service members, uh, a letter from someone expressing admiration. Uh, for his, you know, contributions, his sacrifice would boost his morale. I bet that happened a lot during the wars. There were there were a lot of these type of relationships that you know really kind of blossomed through letter writing. And in this case, uh, Norma sent the letter and added a photograph. Well, almost seconds after Harry saw the picture and read the letter, he wrote to Norma on February twelfth, nineteen forty four, so just before Valentine's Day. And in this case, the letters are read by the actor Keith Nobbs. 
Although Jean had told me that you might drop me a line, I was nevertheless quite surprised and very pleased to receive your letter. When you said, if you answer this letter, I will send you another, did you mean another picture or another letter? I hope you meant both, for I would enjoy looking at my pinup girl in two different moods. Your wish to become a nurse is a worthy goal to shoot at, and I wish you success in realizing your aspirations. Might I hope to enjoy the privilege of your services in the event that I should ever need them? Or even though I didn't really need them? I am in a very remote corner of the world, and mail reaches us much more slowly than it takes to reach the States from here. Your letter arrived just yesterday. I hope that soon there shall be another, with a picture in it, and more to follow. Good night, sweets. Won't you write again soon? Yours, Harry. Wow, he sounds like he was smitten from the very start. Oh, totally. And and far from scaring Norma off, she was actually extremely flattered by his response. Um, they corresponded only a few more times. And on June 27th, 1944, Harry revealed just how deep his feelings for Norma had become. Dearest Norma, today your letters of March 19th and May 1st arrived, which makes four that I've gotten from you. Your pictures, I mean you, are heavenly. Looking at you lends meaning to the story of Mark Twain, who when he first saw the picture of Veli, gazed at it long and earnestly, then said, this girl shall be my wife. I said those same words to your picture, Norma, and I pray that my words shall come to pass as his did. Heaven knows I meant them. Must close. I can't write tonight. Your picture distracts me. I gaze at it continuously, marveling, hoping, imagining, fascinated, wondering if I can possibly ever be happy without you. We'll write again when I recover a bit. In the meantime, I'll be dreaming of you. Love, Harry. Wow, he's already talking about marriage? This is moving fast. And not only that, while she had sent several pictures of herself, he had yet to send a single one to her. And he actually didn't have any on him. But on July 16th, he wrote to Norma this mostly uh, tongue-in-cheek forewarning. I'm sorry I can't send you a picture now, but you did ask me to describe myself and threaten me with your anger should I fail to comply. Remembering what you told me of your terrible temper... I hasten to tell you, and this hurts, that I am not at all handsome. I'm only five feet, seven inches tall, have straight blonde hair, blue eyes, weigh 170 pounds, and worst of all, have a childishly affectionate disposition. Now you tell me your reaction. There is something I do want you to know. Norma, I want you to be my wife just as soon as I can possibly come for you. Won't you tell me frankly, Honestly, if you would marry me when I come home, should you find that you could care for me? Will you answer just as soon as you recover from the shock? Wow, so there's the proposal. How did she reply? You know, I got to, much like Estelle Spiro, who we talked about earlier, I got to meet and talk with Norma, and this is obviously decades after the war, uh, when she shared all these letters with me. And even knowing the outcome, I was still surprised when I read her actual response. My dearest Harry, yes, 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 I will marry you. 
just as soon as you can come for me. I want more than anything in the world to be your wife forever. I love you with all my heart. Your Norma. Yeah, and and that letter was read by uh, Mandy Siegfried. Going back to Norman Harry, despite all this, you know, love and mutual happiness and the uplifting spirit of their letters, there was a more serious undercurrent that they had to address. And that was that Harry, at some point, would be going into battle. And and now that Norma, um, you know, obviously truly cared for him, she was terrified something would happen. And at the end of a letter he wrote on November 28, 1944, he tried to put her worries at ease. We are not supposed to tell anyone when we go into actual combat until after we are aboard ship. And that letter doesn't get in the mail until several days or possibly weeks after we leave our base. To let you know that there will be no letters for a long time, I'll end my last letter before leaving by saying goodbye for a little while. Will you remember that? You know, and Barbara... Sure enough, several months later, Harry was about to be sent into Okinawa. Oh, dear. I'm afraid of what you're going to tell us next. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and as you know, this is one of the most ferocious battles of all of World War II. So before going, Harry wrote Norma the following. I must say goodbye for a little while. Don't worry, dear. I'm not afraid because I'm taking you along and everything I do will be right because you are with me. Harry. Boy, there's uh, foreboding there. I'm kind of afraid to ask what happened next. I've heard that only spouses and family members received official notification of their loved ones uh, if they were killed in action. That's exactly right. So, since Norma was not his wife, it could have been days, weeks, or even a lot more before Norma would even learn his fate. Yeah, and as I mentioned, I got to know Norma. Obviously, this is decades after the war. And she told me that uh, a month after receiving Harry's letter, she was literally waiting by the mailbox. And she saw the postman uh, driving down the road and, and heard him excitedly honk the horn. And in her own words to me, she said, his beaming face told me everything I wanted to know. And after skidding to a stop, he waved an airmail letter with Harry's name listed in the return address. Oh, how exciting. Yeah. and, And she immediately opened the envelope. And this is what he wrote. My beautiful darling, turn your back to the mirror and look over your shoulder. Do you see wings? You must, because you are an angel. Today, I received 19 heavenly letters from you. I can't possibly answer all your questions or reply to your suggestions in this one letter, but I'll try to catch up, sweets, in the near future. I'll write a few lines every time I have a moment to spare, and perhaps I shall be able to send a letter at least once or twice a week. And Barbara, they did keep writing to one another until Harry finally was on his way home. And when was that? Uh, So he landed in California in late September 1945 and called Norma. And this was the first time they would hear each other's voices. And Harry was, as they say, floating on air. And he couldn't help writing one last letter before they met. 8.30, Sunday evening. Darling. I don't remember a word you said, but I still hear the sound of your sweet voice echoing in my heart. How can I wait seven whole days to hear you talk to me again? But this is the end of our long time of waiting. Will you marry me soon, Monday? 
I've never loved you more than at this very moment. If my present plans carry through, I will leave here Tuesday evening and should reach Chattanooga sometime Sunday. And unless I let you know otherwise, I'll call you at eight that evening. Do you suppose we'll be as excited then as we were tonight? Well, why shouldn't we be excited? Nothing as important as this has ever happened to us before. Oh, honey child, Monday, Monday, Monday. I'm so happy I could turn handsprings in the middle of Market Street. And Monday morning, I am going to give you the greatest, biggest hug you have ever heard about, because I love you, I love you. Norma, I love you. Harry. And Barbara, less than one week later was the moment of truth. Norma Clinton and Harry Kipp finally met face-to-face. Oh, my goodness. I'm on pins and needles. Was she disappointed? Well, so despite what he had said in his letter about not being handsome, Norma told me that he looked like a Roman god. More importantly, of course, uh, they clicked immediately got married, and they stayed happily together for the rest of their lives. Oh, my goodness. Wow, I'm so glad the news was good. It's always nice to hear when a story ends well, and especially how it was actually letters that brought them together. I'm guessing, though, that there are less positive outcomes, such as letters from one person to another saying that the relationship is over. Those are the correspondences that have come to be known as Dear John letters, right? That's right. And the first one I ever saw was uh, given to me by a veteran named Saul Summers, who had served on a ship in the Pacific during World War II. And he told me that uh, he and his fellow crewmates would usually gather up all their Dear John letters, burn them, and then ceremonially bury them at sea. Mm, wow. Yeah, and, but, but for some reason... Saul kept his. You know, I'm really intrigued, Andy, by this whole thing of Dear John letters. What does someone say to someone that they once loved who's off risking their life for their country? We'd like to hear one of those letters. Here's one. This one's read by Joan Allen. March 25th, 1945. Dear Saul, I know it's been quite some time since you last heard from me, and no doubt you've been wondering why the long absence. This is by far the most difficult thing I've had to do, and you must realize how much it pains me. I've always been honest with you, Saul, and I believe you deserve only the truth from me, for you yourself are so fine and wonderful a person. So I'll be perfectly honest with you. I've met someone I care for very much. Don't think for a moment that it was your fault, Saul. I don't believe it was either of our faults. Neither of us wished to have things happen as they did. It just happened, and we can't do anything about it. Guess they call it fate. You've been wonderful to me all along, and I think you are one of the grandest, sincerest people I've had the honor of meeting. I'm certain you'll meet someone in the very near future who will be able to give you what I can no longer give. For someone is fine and understanding a person as you saw deserves only the best in life. I'm returning your gifts and the ring to your mother, which I believe is the only fair thing to do. Thank her and your dad for being so wonderful to me. If I could but spare you and them all this, believe me, Saul, I would, but I see no way. Here's wishing you the very best in life. For all who know you know full well that you certainly deserve it. Good luck to you always, and here's wishing you a happy voyage home and soon. 
I think the reason Saul could laugh about it later is that, and, and he told me this personally, when he returned to the States, he met the true love of his life and just never looked back. But another one of the most powerful letters I've been given was the response to a Dear John letter by a soldier in the Korean War named Leon. I guess he didn't take it as well as Saul Summers did, huh? No, he did not. And, uh, and this letter is actually read by Edward Norton. Korea, Hill 1062. Dear Babe, I just received your letter in this morning's mail. I held it in my hand for a minute while a little voice in the back of my head whispered, This is it. This is the one. You tried to let me down easy. I never said I was the greatest guy on earth. You did. Anyway, he's there. I'm here. Be careful, you tell me. Take care. I almost laughed out loud. We wouldn't want to see me hurt, would we? There's no need to worry about me. I'll be all right. Do I say something brilliant like, may all your troubles be little ones? How about, if you ever need a friend, that presumes a future. There are 500,000 North Koreans and Chinese on the other side of that hill bound and determined to make sure I don't have a future. Over here where your past is your last breath, your present is this breath, and your future is your next breath, you don't make too many promises. Which leaves me what? Goodbye, Leon. Wow, he sounds pretty bitter yeah, about and, that. Uh, yeah, understandably so. Yeah, indeed. Well, Andy, you know, I'm thinking there are a lot of women who've served in the armed forces. There must be Dear Jane letters as well, where a female soldier is told by her sweetheart that their relationship is over. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely there are. And in, in our case, we have a Dear June letter, as the nurse who received it was actually named June, uh, June Wandry. And she's someone we'll be hearing more about in these podcasts, as she wrote hundreds of great letters during her time abroad. Abroad. In March 1944, while June was off treating wounded troops in Italy, she received a letter from her a sweetheart back in America that wasn't an outright rejection, but pretty close. And this letter is read by Rob Lowe. June, darling, there is something I have wanted to write about for the past several weeks and is something I feel should be discussed. Regardless of the final outcome, I feel that it is no more than fair to all concerned that I tell you now. Otherwise, I'm afraid that someday I might feel the perfect heel and be ashamed even to face myself. If you've not already guessed, I am referring to the love tangle I've become involved in. On one or two previous occasions, I've mentioned Mary in my letters. Whether you had ever thought or wondered if I was becoming too interested in someone else, I don't know, but... It almost seems that at times you must have. Our friendship started very casually, with an occasional date, never dreaming of or having any desire to go steady with anyone. In a short while, however, it became quite apparent that ours was to be more than just a casual acquaintance. Darling, I've had many sleepless and worried nights, 
but can't see through the fog I'm engulfed in. This June is just one more and important reason why I want you to return to the States now, because I don't want this to drag out indefinitely. It has been more than difficult to write this letter, darling, but at least I now feel as though a heavy weight has been lifted from my heart and mind. My love, Dell. I'm not exactly sure where he was going from there. It sounds like he's writing this more for his own sake than out of genuine sensitivity for June. For, yeah, and as it turns out, we, we actually have June's thoughts about that, not in a letter to him, but to her parents and sister back in Wisconsin. And this letter is read by Juliana Margulies. Mother, Daddy, and Ruthie, it is cruel to lift the weight from a man's heart and mind who is living stateside in great comfort and luxury in his custom-tailored uniforms and dump it on another's heart and mind who is living in a tent in the mud being rocked by artillery fire in the mountains and harassed by low-flying German fighters. I can understand civilians not knowing how war is fought, but I cannot understand how officers can be so naive. He says, return to the States now. Am I supposed to go to General Mark Clark, letter in hand, and get permission to leave the battle zone? Lying creatively in a short letter, I gently let him off the hook. In spirit, I joined the legion of soldiers in European theater of operations who received a Dear John letter. Love postponed on account of war became my battle cry. Just June. Well, she sounds pretty hurt, but I bet she's pretty mad, too. Absolutely. So, Andy, you've mentioned before that you weren't just searching for letters necessarily from past wars, but emails written during the current conflicts. Are there any love emails that have stood out to you? Yeah. And first, I'm really glad you mentioned the emails part because a lot of people assume that we're just looking for physical letters. But, you know, emails written during Iraq and Afghanistan are just as important to us. And I've actually come across quite a few really great love emails, as you call them. Um, it's hard to choose a favorite. Uh, there's one I find especially poignant and, and even kind of whimsical. And it was written by a National Guardsman, Specialist Michael Viverito, who was driving supply trucks from Kuwait into Iraq. And, and this was a very dangerous job. Troops were getting shot at. Uh, They were being blown up by roadside bombs. And Michael was also understandably preoccupied by the fact that his wife was pregnant with their second child. Yeah, you can understand that. Yeah. And so, yeah, even worse, just before he left for Iraq, his son, uh, a young infant, had to undergo open heart surgery. Thankfully, he came through it okay, But it just added to the stress that Michael and his wife, Jesse, were enduring. This is what he wrote. And this email is read by Mirren Willis. Baby, I miss you so much. I think about you constantly. Jesse, I can't imagine what you were going through there with our new baby growing inside of you and Charlie at your knees. All I can think and dream is that deep inside you is a paradise where this baby is growing. And when he or she comes out, we will make our life the same kind of place of warmth and love. I am so sorry I am not there for you. But I am, Jesse. I am right there with you all day, every day. Because every day, you are all I see when I close my eyes. 
I hold my breath and I reach for you and I can almost grab you. I can almost touch your cheek. I reach for your hand and another bump in the road jerks me back into this truck. Another bump in the road. That's all this is, right? Baby, someday, I don't know when and I don't know how, but we will be together. And there will not be anything or anyone who will pull me away from you again. I need you to breathe. I'll hold my breath for both of us. I'll take it all. Will you dance around the world with me? Love you forever. Michael. That was beautiful. Did, did he make it home? Oh, for, yes, fortunately he did. I think that's the perfect letter, or should I say email, to end on. We want to thank Blackstone Audio for letting us use the recordings, including that one from Andy Carroll's book, Operation Homecoming. We also want to thank American Experience, a production of the WGBH Educational Foundation, for the correspondences featured in the documentary War Letters. And finally, we want to thank Simon & Schuster Audio. Some of the letters featured in this podcast are taken from the audio books for Andy's Behind the Lines and War Letters. And these are available wherever audio books are sold. Please visit simonandschuster.com for more information. This is just one episode in a series of ongoing Behind the Lines podcasts. You can find out more information on our website, BehindTheLines.us, where you can learn more about the podcast and about Andy's Center for American War Letters at Chapman University and their efforts to save these irreplaceable correspondences. And, you know, Barbara, as we talked about before, someone out there listening right now might even have a war letter or letters from their family to share that will end up on a future episode. Uh, And people can help us just by spreading the word. Again, all that information is on the center's website, warletters.us. And be sure to tune in for our next episode. I'm Barbara Harrison. Thanks again for listening.